Good morning. Before we get started today, I want to share a story of something that happened a couple weeks ago when Sarah and I were in a Bible study with a friend of ours. Um, it was just a super cool moment, and I, I thought it would be fun to share. So we've been going through uh, the book of Acts with our friend, and we are at the point in Acts where we have finished the story of Stephen. And at the conclusion of the story of Stephen, you read about the people who are stoning Stephen to death, laying their garments at the feet of this guy named Saul. And so we're talking about Saul and how he is basically public enemy number one of the early church. He is arresting people for following Jesus. He is killing people. He's ripping families apart, and he's breathing out threats and hatred against the Christians. So we've established that Saul is a, is a pretty bad guy. At the end of all of these studies, what we try and do each week is do like a Netflix-style tune in next week for XYZ that happens. And so at the end of this study, you know, we said, hey, tune in next week to hear how Saul, public enemy number one of the church, actually becomes Paul, the most famous apostle and writer of the majority of the New Testament. And that, like, sneak peek prompted several, no, or like, no way, like, you have to be kidding me, right? And I was like, no, I'm not kidding. He says, well, now that really has me wondering, right, like, who talks to him? It has to be somebody really good because to take somebody who's this opposed and then make them a believer, like who is it that talks to him? And in that moment, like I couldn't help but laugh because he doesn't know it yet, but boy, oh boy, is it somebody really good who talks to Saul. It's the risen Jesus. And so I'm like, dude, you just wait until we get back next week. And that moment, that process of seeing someone discover scripture for the first time is amazing. It is so cool to watch somebody become familiar with the narrative and the timeline and the characters of the gospel. The same friend is extremely in to John the Baptist. He's like, that's my guy. Like he just loves John the Baptist. But more than just the timeline and the characters, the discovery of Jesus and his heart and his actions, that's what is drawing people in. And once you see people see that, you can't unsee it. That process of digging into scripture with people, of sharing Jesus with people, is a huge focus for our church right now. Like we're in the middle of these series of lessons from Barry about how do we leave the 99 to go after the one? Or how do we transition from being a group that's not just merely inwardly focused, but also explicitly externally focused in trying to share the gospel? It's a two-part mission. We've recently even started some dialogue around, are there some scriptural changes that we can make? Is there anything we can do in the habits of our members, in the order of our worship, in the name of our group? Anything that we can do that says, how do we scripturally make it easier for us to share the gospel with other people? Well, this morning we're going to talk about like two very practical ways to get started 
with that. It's on the individual level, but it will absolutely inform some of the things that we do corporately and be part of this larger theme of how do we be more evangelistic. So our theme for today's lesson is that we will better fulfill our mission to spread the gospel when we do two things. The first is when we bring Jesus to people. The other is when we bring people to Jesus. All right, so bringing Jesus to people and bringing people to Jesus. It's a little wordy, but you'll see that it's two distinct things in the scriptures that we'll look at this morning. Basically, if you have two things, if you have A and B and they're not together, you can either bring B closer to A or you can bring A closer to B, but it works best if you bring both together at the same time. So turn with me to the passage that Brian just read in Mark chapter 1. This is where we'll first examine this principle of bringing Jesus to people. Mark chapter 1, just for some quick context, it blitzes through John the Baptist and Jesus and his baptism and the heavens ripping open, um, the temptation of Jesus, him beginning his ministry, he calls the first disciples, and then right before this section that we're going to read, he um, rebukes and removes an unclean spirit from someone. He teaches with authority, and he's got authority over spiritual powers of darkness, and he's got authority in the way in which he's teaching, and the result of that is that fame is spreading as he's beginning his ministry on the back of John the Baptist, spreading uh, the awareness that he was coming. So into that context, we now read in verse 29 of Mark chapter 1, And immediately he, talking about Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. So Simon's mother-in-law is ill with a fever. There's a parallel account in Luke chapter 4 where Luke describes this as a high fever, and I think that actually helps us understand what's going on here. If you'll allow maybe some creative liberty to help set the scene and picture what's really going on here. Because the, the word she just lay ill with a fever perhaps gives us the wrong impression. It's possible that she woke up that morning and wasn't feeling very well. Like conceivably that could have happened. But is it perhaps maybe more likely that this is something that had progressed for a while? Maybe it started off and she had a cough and then that turned into you know, like a respiratory thing, and then that's turned into now this fever, this illness and this sickness that has progressed to a point that it's really serious. Have you ever had a high fever? I had one like a month ago with the flu, and it was terrible. You get body aches all over. You're burning up, and no matter how many cool rags you try and put on somebody, they just can't seem to drop their body temperature. Can you see maybe Simon's wife caring for her mother, trying all of the medicine that they have in this moment? Maybe there's a doctor in the area, maybe not. Even if they are, they haven't been much help. We don't have 
ibuprofen and Tylenol and antibiotics and modern day medicine in these scenarios. Like this is dire and as a result of her being this ill, we're headed down a path where if there's not intervention, there's going to be death and there's going to be suffering. This is serious. Now how can we read between the lines and see that level of urgency just out of something that says she lay ill with a fever? Well, in that parallel account in Luke, he tells us that the disciples immediately that the disciples appealed on her behalf to Jesus. Or in other words, they pleaded with him. So think about this for a moment. If she was just like not feeling altogether that well, or like maybe had a little headache, or she had like a 101.1 fever, like is it likely that when you have Jesus, the one who John the Baptist has set the stage for, he's the Messiah, he's casting out demons, he's your new teacher, he's all this, the second that he comes into your house, the first thing that you do is you say, Jesus, please come with me. My mother-in-law's got a little bit of a headache. Would you take care of that? Like that's not what this is. This is, hey, there is a serious situation and we need you. Please come here quickly because if you don't come and intervene here, it's not going to be good. This scenario makes a lot more sense for them to immediately bring him to her and to appeal on her behalf if there's urgency, if there's a shot clock and they know this is dire circumstances. That context then helps us understand how they can say, here she is, here, please come help her. And you would do the same thing. If you knew that somebody had the cure and your person that you really care about is ill, you would not hesitate and wait. You would rush them straight in to find that person. You would do the same thing if your house was on fire and somebody came up with a big bucket of water or a hose, probably a bucket wouldn't do it, but you would say, hey, no, like right here. If somebody was dying of thirst and somebody had thirst quenching, life-saving water, you would direct them right to it. And that same principle is seen in the second story that Brian read for us in Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus had just concluded healing another demon-possessed man, and more and more word is spreading about his ministry. And so when he comes back from the country of the Gerasenes, he gets to the shoreline, and there's people lined up everywhere. There's a great crowd of people. Can you picture this scene in your head? There's a boat. It's coming in. Jesus is getting off, and everyone's standing shoulder to shoulder, and they go, here he is. That's Jesus. Like, he's here. Is he going to do a sign? Is he going to drop some teaching on us? Like, what's this going to be like? And you can see the crowd just be packed on this shoreline. Well, what Mark tells us is that Jairus, a leader of the synagogue, pushes his way to the front. He is there so that the second that he sees Jesus, he falls at his feet. So can you see Jairus maybe like bumping through like you would in a crowded concert and saying like, hey, let me in. I got to get to the front. I'm pushing up. I've got to see him. And when he sees Jesus, he throws himself at his feet and he pleads with Jesus. He says, you have to come with me. My daughter is about to die. 
And if you come, she can be made well and live. But if you don't, in other words, she's not going to make it. This is a, a deeply emotional scene to picture. For Jairus, it would have been all but overwhelming and all-encompassing. You have to think about, this is this guy's daughter. He has held her in his arms countless times. He's bounced her on his knee. He's protected her when she's fallen and scraped up her elbow. But now, she's in a situation and he can't do anything to fix it. But he knows that there's one who can, so he is desperate. This is a father at his wit's end doing anything he possibly can to get to the one who can do something about it. So now can you see on this packed shoreline that Jairus gets here and he sees that Jesus is coming and he's practically elbowing people out of the way and saying, please, you have to let me get to him. I need to bring him to my daughter because if I don't, I know what's going to happen. He gets to Jesus and it says he implored him earnestly. He pleaded with him. The same principle is mirrored in the story of Simon and the story of Jairus. We see that there's a dire situation with life and death consequences, and they know that the best and only move they have is to go directly to Jesus and to plead with him and to bring him to this situation. And it makes sense. Jesus had miraculous power and a track record of healing people that were otherwise unhealable. Jesus could step in at a moment when it seemed like all is lost, and he could bring life to the dying. Jesus' interventions would change everything. So bringing him to these people and pleading with them, falling at his feet in concerns for the people that you love, it's logical, it's powerful, it's scriptural, it just makes sense. And we should do the same thing too. Because here's the thing, pleading with Jesus for people who are in dire circumstances in an intercessory way isn't reserved for the first century and it's not reserved for physical illnesses. Should we still pray for people in physical circumstances in dire need? Yes, absolutely, completely valid. But aren't there higher stakes and isn't there more urgency? Isn't the real mission of Jesus to deal with a different kind of sickness, the sin in people's lives and its eternal consequences? So practically speaking, do you think about the people in your life who don't know Jesus and who aren't following him? Do you think about them? Do you think about them with the same urgency that Jairus and Simon thought about their respective loved ones? Do you think about the people in your life who are lost in sin and darkness as actually lost in sin and darkness. One of the reasons that the disciples took action immediately 
and brought Jesus to Simon's mother-in-law is because they understood the gravity of the situation. And one of the reasons that Jairus was willing to go to the lengths that he was able to to get to Jesus is because he understood what would happen if he didn't bring Jesus to this situation. We can take a lesson from these passages and this pattern of bringing Jesus to people and pleading with him by praying for these people and talking to Jesus about them. Think of somebody in your life who doesn't know the Lord or is choosing not to follow them. Excuse me, not to follow him. How often are you praying for that person? How often are you pleading with Jesus and falling at his feet, asking him, please give them more time. Please give them a soft heart to hear the gospel. Please give me boldness when I'm in this situation. Open a door for me. Give me some sign that I can do something. We have the luxury of accessibility with Jesus. We don't have to push through a busy crowd to try and get to him, which is all the more reason that we should be willing to talk to the one who has the solution and the answer to the illness and the sickness that the people all around us have. There are unquestionably people in my life and people in your life who are lost in spiritual darkness and we have a friend and a relationship with the one who can fix it. So a very simple way to get started with this is to create a list of some of those people in your life who you know need Jesus. This can be a long list. This can be a single name. But take this list and put it on a post-it note and put it on your fridge. Put it in your car. Put it on your bathroom mirror where you brush, right, right next to your toothbrush. Put it as the lock screen on your phone. If we have more awareness of their situation and we're truthful about the reality of their condition without Jesus, we will talk to him about their situation and about how we want him to save them and how we want him to be patient with them And we know he wants those same things too. Jairus and Simon were specific in the people that he asked them to come and to help. And there's power in us being specific as well. Because Jesus has miraculous power and a track record of healing people who otherwise would be unhealable. Jesus can step in at the last minute when it seems like there's no hope and he can give life to the dying. Jesus' intervention changes everything. And so pleading with him, bringing him to the people that need him, it makes sense, it's powerful, it's logical, it's scriptural, and we need to do it. So that's the first part of how we get started very practically with being more evangelistic, is having an increased awareness and praying for those people, talking to Jesus and asking him to open doors and to be patient and to work in their lives. But there's a flip side of this. 
If we're going to talk about bringing Jesus to people, we also have to talk about bringing people to Jesus. So turn over to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. This story is an exact account of this idea of bringing people to Jesus. Jesus has just uh, continued in this scenario. He has just healed another uh, demon from someone. He's come back uh, into the city of Capernaum. His fame is spreading. There's people all around him, and he's teaching in a house. And this house is so packed, it's not just like standing room only. There's no room at all. There's not even room in the street outside the door. There's so many people. And there's this group of people, there's this group of men who want to bring their friend who's paralyzed to Jesus. But they can't get through. They're not able, however Jairus was able to do it, to get through that crowd and get to Jesus. These guys can't do that. And inherently, that somewhat makes sense, right? Like, they're carrying him because he can't walk on a bed. And if you've ever tried to carry like one corner of a mattress or a blanket, even with a little child on it, and some other people are grabbing the other corners, you can't move as fluidly, and it's heavy. So they can't get through to this crowd to get to Jesus. So what do they do? They take extreme measures, and they carry their friend, maybe as carefully as they can, and they make an ascent to the roof of this house. Maybe there's stairs, maybe there's not. We don't know how they get up there, but they get to the roof while holding their friend whose life is in their hands as they're scaling or he's just dependent on them and they're saying, we will do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. And they take the roof of this house that he's teaching in and they rip it off. They say, Jesus is in this house, we're gonna do whatever it takes, property damage aside, we're gonna get him to Jesus because he can do something. And they start to lower him through the roof. And I don't know how safe that this is. This is not with straps and tie-downs and harnesses. It's not Mission Impossible where Tom Cruise is like so controlled dropping through the ceiling. This is like desperate people doing anything they can think of to get their friend to Jesus. And when Jesus sees this, he rewards their faith. He uses this opportunity to, to hammer home like a larger truth about his ministry and his ability to forgive sins, his true mission. He says, I'm going to prove to you that I can address, or address the invisible sins and heal those by proving to you that I can address the visible paralysis. And so he says to this guy, arise, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And in that moment, there's a man who, I don't know if it's years, I don't know if it's his whole life, but he's been unable to walk. And this would directly impact his dignity. This would impact his ability to provide for himself, his, his everyday life. And this man is transformed. He's given legs and now he can run and jump and stand up. He can work a normal job. He doesn't have to be a beggar anymore. His life is completely changed. And the disciples are proven correct for having put their faith in Jesus and gone to these uh, 
lengths to try and get this man to Jesus because he heals them. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just heal this guy. Jesus forgives this man's sins. He does something for him so much greater and more powerful than just removing like an illness and a malady and giving this guy a huge about face with his life. He removes the separation and the sin from this man's life and puts him in a right spot with God. And his friends didn't even know that was going to happen. That was just the ultimate cherry on top. But here's the thing, is that we do know that Jesus can forgive sins. And we do know that he can take away the separation from someone's life of them with God. He can make them clean. He can restore them. He can give them new life. And we do know that he can do that. So what does it say about our faith in Jesus and his ability to heal and to forgive sins if we aren't willing to bring anybody to him? When we consider the risks that this group of people took to get their friend to Jesus, it begs the question, what lengths am I willing to go to to bring other people to Jesus? Am I willing to potentially look a little bit crazy to the world talking about the meaning of life and eternity and God and sins? Am I willing to spend my time and resources and sweat and effort in the name of bringing other people to Jesus? We talked about this yesterday in our group meetings, this concept of investing in the lives of other people. To put it really plainly, like that is how we spread the gospel to other people, is by investing in the lives of other people. It takes our time and effort and love, vulnerability. It takes our testimony. If we want to invest in the lives of others, there's not a single better way to do it than to share the gospel with them. Now again, there's a prerequisite that we have to see the situations that they're in for what they are. We have to see lost people as lost. But do you know what these men did to bring their friend to Jesus? They brought him to Jesus. <laughs> they introduced the two of them. They said, we'll call this guy Tom. Tom, you have to get to meet him. You have to give him a chance. He can heal you. We've seen him do it. I know he can do it. We've seen him do it for other people. Just come and see. That's what they said to their friend. This is the exact same thing that we see with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. That'll be the last passage we look at this morning. So in John chapter 4, we have this story of the woman at the well who encounters Jesus. And he's able to talk with her about her situation in explicit detail that immediately remember, like, real, like reveals to her that who I'm talking to isn't just some guy. 
And he tells her and reveals to her that he is the Messiah. And when she connects the dots and recognizes who Jesus is and what he's capable of, this woman leaves her jar at the, at the well and runs off into the city, which is like the most ridiculous thing. No one would ever do that. No one would carry a big jug out to fill it up with water and then leave it and run back into town. But she's so fixated with who Jesus is that she runs into town. And she tells everybody. (laughs) If you look in John chapter 4, in verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I can't tell you how many times I've read this story in John 4. It's like the woman at the well is fairly familiar. But I don't think I had ever realized and put together this little detail in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Do you realize that the thing that helped these people to believe in Jesus was someone's personal testimony? It was come and see what he has done for me, and he can do the same for you. Sharing Jesus' message of hope and forgiveness and grace lands with people so much more when it's coming from someone who has directly experienced those things. For us to start effectively bringing people to Jesus, this is going to sound really simplistic, but we need to just start bringing, or excuse me, yeah, bringing people to Jesus. We bring people to Jesus by bringing people to Jesus, and you're like, okay, yeah, that's kind of dumb. Like, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that we introduce them like what, this woman, like what this woman did. We say things like, come and see. We say things like, my life was a complete wreck before I met him. And I was dead in my sins and lost. And he has forgiven me and given me new life. He's unlike anybody I've ever met I did nothing to deserve it, but he has loved me despite all of my deepest flaws. And he's given me more hope and meaning and purpose than I ever thought was possible. And then, 
we can say things like, and he can do the same for you. I'm very aware that there's a big jump from talking to Jesus about people in your life who need to know him and looking at the list on the fridge or on your phone and then actually having conversations with those people. It can seem like that's a pretty wide gap. But sometimes the reason that that feels intimidating is because it's new or it's unfamiliar or because we have a false understanding of what it means to tell other people about Jesus. Notice what this woman did not do is say, let me point out all of the sins and all of the flaws and all of the weaknesses in your life and throw them at you. Or let me talk to you about every single doctrinal truth and its possible interpretation and how this is the right one because you need to know that right off the bat. It wasn't, you need to understand that your entire life is going to change and you're going to have to die and this is going to be really, really, really hard. That's not the first thing that we tell people. We don't lead with fire and brimstone and damnation. We lead with come and see. Come and meet him. Come and spend time with him. If we expect people to look like Jesus and to live like Jesus before they've ever met Jesus, everyone involved is going to be disappointed and frustrated. And disciple-making is important, and those aspects of greater truths of Scripture and what it means to follow Him and to be obedient aren't just things we should gloss over, but that's not what we lead with. If we want to get started very practically bringing people to Jesus, it is imperative that you tell Him what He's done for you in your life. Sharing the gospel and the message of Christ's forgiveness and grace and love and mercy. It connects with people more when it's coming from someone who's experienced it. So if you can imagine for a moment what some of those initial conversations with the paralyzed man might have sounded like, We'll, we'll stick with calling him Tom. Like, hey, Tom, I, I know that you have been paralyzed for maybe your whole life or for a long time, but there's somebody who can fix it. No, I'm serious. Listen to me. I, I, prom- like, I promise. I'm, I'm being serious. There is somebody who can fix it, and he can heal you, and he can give you your legs back and your life back, and you don't have to be a beggar anymore. And I know that he can do it because I've seen him do it for other people. Can you see how before these men convinced Tom to lay on a bed and let them carry him on a roof, they might have had to say something like that to him? Well, now imagine what this is like for you. Think of somebody in your life. And you say to them, Hey, Tom, I know that you have just experienced this terrible loss or you've always had questions about God's existence and his care for you or maybe you've been living in a way that's just not working anymore and you know it or there's been this ongoing struggle that you just haven't been able to kick but there is somebody who can fix that he can heal you no I'm I'm being serious he can heal you 
and he can remove your biggest burdens and your greatest sins, and he can forgive you and cleanse you and give you new life, and I know he can do it because he did that for me. I've seen him do it. The theme of this lesson is that we will better fulfill our mission to spread the gospel when we bring Jesus to other people and when we bring other people to Jesus. And if we're doing both of those things simultaneously, it creates a flywheel. The more that you think about the people in your life who need to get to know him, the more that their names are in front of your face and you're talking to the Lord about their circumstances and you're pleading for an opportunity to talk to them and for patience, for boldness, then the more likely that you're going to be to actually go have these conversations and say, see what he's done for me, he can do this for you, which is all that you have to say. You don't have to have a magic sequence of words and tone of voice and the precise right thing and you don't have to explain all of scripture. You just have to explain, look what he's done for me and come and see and meet him and I'd love to introduce you. And we'll get to the rest of that, but you have to meet him. There's people in the world who don't know anything about Jesus and there's people in the world who know of him There's so many people who don't know him. And we do. And we can't sit on it. If we can do this right, and we'll talk about more ways throughout this year and throughout these lessons of how to how to get it right and how to do it. But if we start doing this individually, it will attribute to how we do things collectively. And it creates this flywheel effect where we have more momentum and we can save more lost souls. And hopefully, what happens from this is that we get to a spot where we can't unsee it when other people see Jesus. Where they don't just say, like, wow, that's so cool that Jesus would come and he would talk to Saul and he would turn his life around but that he would say, wow, if he can forgive Saul of everything that he did, he can forgive me too. And wow, Jesus loves me so much that he would forgive all of my sins and that I could have all of these blessings with him? Are you kidding me? That's what we want to do as a church. That's what we need to do as God's people. And I'm really excited to do this with all of you this year. That's our lesson for today, that we will better fulfill our mission, our mission to spread the gospel when we bring Jesus to other people and when we bring other people to Jesus. We save um, the end of our lessons a lot of times to offer a, a time or an invitation, a space to say, hey, if there's something in your life that you want prayers for or encouragement for, please let us know. If there's something that you have that you need to confess publicly, please let us know. If there's something that you just want to come up and say, hey, I want to praise God for this thing, and can we just do that right now? Like, we'll do that. This is an opportunity for us to reflect and to consider all of the wonderful things that God has done for us and how to um, respond to that. And ultimately, if you're new and you don't know Jesus and you want to or you want to put on the gospel, now would be a great time to do that. Let's think about those things as we stand and sing.